So if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn your Bibles on to Psalm 23. And we're going to be taking a look at this psalm and what it means, not just to King David, who wrote the psalm, but also what it means to us here today in Dartmouth, in Coal Harbor, in Halifax, in Nova Scotia. You know, when Debbie and I were in Portugal a little over a year ago, we noticed just outside of our hotel a lot of buzz. There was a lot of activity going on, and, and it was right near the beach. And so I walked down to take a look at what was happening, and it seems that the lo- in the local town that we were staying in was hosting this Ironman competition. Now, I don't know how many of you enter Ironman competitions. I, for one, obviously don't. But a lot of these look like they did, and some of you in this room even look like you have probably been involved in Ironman races. If you don't know what an Ironman race is, it's a race where you swim two miles, you cycle 112, and then you run as fast as you can a full 26-mile marathon. I don't know why, but that's what they do. Now, I'm good at swimming a few feet and then stopping to rest. And then, you know, I'm excited when I actually make it around the block for a walk. And I feel very proud of myself when I do so. But an Ironman competition, I have to say, is a whole other level. It's a different world. How in the world do these people keep going? What sustains them when they feel tired, when they feel drained? You know, when they feel spent? You know what? Life is a lot like an Ironman competition, except that in life, the stakes are higher and, and much higher, in fact, than sore thighs and, and, and physical exhaustion. And the other thing is we don't get to choose to join in the race. If you're breathing, you're in the race. And, and the question is the same, though, however, uh, as the one we asked about the Ironman race. How do we keep going? What sustains us when we feel tired and drained and spent? Okay, so now back into Psalm 23. Way back, it's about 4,000 years ago, in the Old Testament, we discover this guy named King David, who faced an awful lot of victories and blessings in his life, but at the same time, he also experienced a lot of difficulties. He experienced some of the deepest, darkest moments anyone could ever experience. If you, if you think of a candidate for anyone to be the poster child of PTSD, David was it. He experienced threats on his life. His family fell apart in a big way. His favorite son, in fact, even tried to kill him. Imagine that. He had a wife reject him, and his father-in-law tried to get rid of him. And these are just a few of the issues that he had to deal with. Talk about a messed up life and an even more messed up family. You know what, yet even in the middle of some of the toughest parts of his own personal Iron Man race, David says that in life, even when life is handing him the worst it can, he has everything that he needs. Think about that. No matter what he was enduring at any given time, and some of it is way worse than many of us, most of us at least, would ever experience, he said he has everything that he needs. But here's the thing, that's the truth that we can also own as well, church, each one of us. We have what we need. Now, if you're following along and you have taken notes, the first point will be we have what we need. 
Take a look at verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. You know, each one of us, every single one of us, wakes up each morning as a bundle of desires. Beneath even the most outwardly apathetic demeanor, you're going to discover loves and needs and fears. Each of those demanding our attention and our obedience. We may even, I think, mostly are largely unconscious of these basic emotions, but they're there just the same, kind of sitting at the control panel of our lives, you know, uh, pulling the levers that decide what we say and do. Much too often, if you're like me, I let those levers control what I say and I do. A husband and father, for example, leaves work filled with a love for comfort and goes to work and obeys that love by coming home to find rest in the comfort of what? His couch and sports. Not saying it for everybody, but often I think that's where we might find ourselves. An employee walks in the office feeling this deep need for her peers' approval, so she performs in her job from 9 to 5, always looking for that applause, that assurance. Young man wounded from past relationships fears the prospect of future pain and is fearful of that, and so withdraws socially, insulating himself from anyone else who might do him harm. This is why I think we love to share uh, verse 2 on our Instagram stories uh, or, or share with a friend who is hurting. Verses 2 and 3 says this, He lets me lie down in green pastures. Oh, sounds good, doesn't it? He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Done. We're finished with the passage because that sounds so good. I mean, it's so comforting, isn't it? The trouble, however, is that we love this idea of going to green pastures and still waters. I mean, why wouldn't we? That's a great thing to do and a great place to be led to. But here's the thing. When the shepherd leads us in the opposite direction of our feelings, we often, and I think too often, we push back. I don't want to go there. That's because our loves, our, our needs, and fears push us toward one path. What's that path? The green pasture and the still waters path, the path of comfort. I like my comfort. I like my couch. I like my, 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 my sports games, especially when my team wins. I like to be in the, in the comfort stage. And yet, we'll push back, even if he calls us to another path that might disrupt our lives. I don't want that. That means then that if we honestly wish to follow Jesus, and we say, yeah, I, I'm, sign me up, I'm going to be following Jesus, we, we need to then deny those basic instincts and to go to, uh, to, go to what we deem as a better place. And instead, we got to start listening to his voice, the voice that teaches us to say back to our feelings five words, five simple words. I have what I need. I have what I need. I know for me, there have been times when I wake up with this instinctive love for comfort. I don't think I'm the only one in this room. I just want to move from bed to office to couch to bed without any kind of interruptions. You know how it is sometimes. I can't be bothered by other people today, especially the needy ones. Not today, please. I, I need more rest. I need more me time. That, that hard conversation, that can wait till tomorrow. I don't need that one today. But then I stop. And I'm beginning to learn to listen to that other voice, that other voice that teaches me to say, when I walk into discomfort, five words, 
I have what I need. I have what I need. Or perhaps maybe you wake up feeling a deep need for approval. I didn't get enough likes on my Facebook page yesterday. I need more. You just want others to appreciate you, to listen to you, to love you. You wish you were better looking, you maybe less awkward, but then that other point of view wraps its arm around your shoulders and helps you say, listen, I have one master, one master to please today, and I don't care even if others reject or ignore me today. Five words, I have what I need. I have what I need. Or maybe you wake up with this nagging worry, this, this fear of coming problems, a, a crowd of what ifs. Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if that doesn't happen? What if this doesn't happen? And those things run through your mind. And maybe it's, you wake up because you can't sleep because those what ifs are continuing to run through your mind. And, and so what you do is you answer by searching for something to distract you. And the, the wild pack of loves and needs and fears have rushed at you, but you're able to beat them back with these five words, and you can shove back with those five words, I have what I need. Say it with me, church. I have what I need. Of course, these five words, I have what I need, possesses no kind of mystical properties or qualities. You, you can't lift it up like a Harry Potter wand and wish these temptations away simply by saying these words. Rather, they are powerful only insofar as we believe the words that come before them. And what are those words? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord's my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. When David writes in verse 4, even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, what do they do? They comfort me. You see, David doesn't see the shepherd uh, scratching his head, confused, wondering where they took a wrong turn. That, that's not the picture David gives us. David trusts that his shepherd meant for him to pass that way, whatever that way is, the good way and the valley way. We, we can know with confidence, church, that we have what we need, even when our loves and our needs and our fears say just the opposite. Because Jesus is our shepherd who never once says, oops, didn't mean to go there. Not only that, but our shepherd is weaponized with a rod and staff. You could almost make that into a movie poster of Jesus with his rod and staff. I think that would look so cool. David, he was a shepherd himself. He knew that these, this rod and staff were, were not just for decoration. It wasn't a symbol of being a shepherd. His shepherd wasn't just some hired hand ready to run when the wolf came or the bear came or the lion came. After all, he hadn't left them when he stood before Goliath. So he, he most certainly isn't going to leave him now. David couldn't see all the dangers ahead of him, but he was with someone who could. And not only that, with that rod and that staff, he was with somebody who was prepared. He could trust in him and know that he had all that he needed. That is why David could even say with confidence, even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. By the way, the operative word here is through. In other words, church, this dark valley was not the final destination. 
It's, it's just really a hallway just leading to somewhere else. Surrounded by danger, enemies, and uncertainty, he knows that he'll walk through it with his shepherd leading him. Now, sometimes, yes, the shepherd guarantees that these dark valleys just remain shadows. That, that's great. It's like when he leads us to the green pastures and the still waters. That's, that's great. And so he knows that. Sometimes these dark valleys just remain shadows. In fact, think about this. Having sung David's song countless times, three Hebrew boys about a thousand years after David defied a king named Nebuchadnezzar, knowing that their shepherd was there to save them if he wanted to. But if not, they resolved that they'd remain faithful anyways. It didn't matter to them about the decision they had to make. And as they enter into the furnace, as they enter into the flames, their shepherd stood with them. Nebuchadnezzar could even see that. And what happened? They left untouched. But sometimes, let's face it, we don't leave untouched. Death does come. Tragedies do fall. Heartbreaks do happen. Persecution does come. Sometimes the hope for deliverance doesn't arrive in my timetable. What then? Then, then does he really then still lead through such valleys? <laughs> Church? He does. He does. Jesus, the great shepherd, led a guy by the name of Stephen in the book of Acts. He was the very first martyr through the dark valley of death itself to the place that all his paths will ultimately lead to himself. Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God leading him into glory is what we read in Acts. You know what? David was before Stephen, but David still had that same kind of confidence. Listen to verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord, what? Forever. For a long time. No matter when death finally comes, Jesus leads through death itself for each one of us to dwell in the house of the Lord. That is such a good place to be. That's better than any still water, and that's better than any green grass. God himself is the end of David's journey in Psalm 23. What a great ending to a story. What a great ending to a psalm. What a great ending to a life. The valley of the shadow of death, even when it is more than just the shadows, leads directly to the shepherd himself. Meanwhile, until then, what does the shepherd do? You know what he does? He sustains us. The picture here is of him setting a table for us filled with rich food. What does he say in the first part of, of verse 5? You prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of all my best friends? Or in the presence of all my homies? Or in the presence of people I like? No, what does he say? He, he, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And not the, only does he set a table for David... But you know what, church? We're also invited to that very same table. That's point number two, is we are invited to the table. Now, here's the thing. When our shepherd prepares a table before us, I have to tell you, as good as it sounds, it is way better than a simple peanut butter mayonnaise sandwich. Just seeing if you're listening. At, at his table, we are what? We're dining in style. In style. I mean, forget grabbing just some kind of bag of 
chicken nuggets from the drive-thru and eating them in your van, popping them in your mouth as you're driving home from work. We're, we're talking a full bore Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, the table spread, the place settings are there, the, the, the flowers, the candles, the platter loaded. Just imagine with steaming turkey or tofu if you're vegan. And, and the bowls are all filled with all of the fixings. I mean, someone has prepared a table, and as you eat, what happens? Your strength is renewed. And notice that this is in the present tense. This isn't something that God just did once a long time ago, way back when, and we get to read all about it. It's not even what God does once in a while. It's what God always does for his people. He continually sustains us. He prepares a table for us. But there's something else here. I mean, you think that's good. Listen to this. He prepares a table even well in the presence of my enemies. Second part of verse 5. Now, David is speaking from experience here. Facts were that his life was this unrelenting battle, as I had mentioned a little bit of it. In his early years, he was a shepherd. And yes, he was a shepherd, but he was despised by his brothers. Later, he's living a life as a fugitive, and he's hunted by King Saul. Doesn't get better. When he even becomes king, he inherits this divided kingdom with all these factions and rival tribes filled with seething resentments and alienated, uh, alienating uh, by this uh, deep distrust with each other. And especially David, because now he's the king. And it still doesn't get better. Here, here in later years, David suffered as his family was torn apart by cycles of, a, of abuse and violence and death. At one point, he had to flee for his life when his own son, his favorite son, led a rebellion against him. And this is the guy that is the man after God's own heart, God tells us. Doesn't sound like a, a life I want. It's rough. It's hard. How in the world does this guy keep going? How did he run this, the Ironman race of his life? Well, let me ask you. Just as I'm asking myself, how will you keep going when life gets tough? How do we do this? How do we keep running this Ironman race of life? What do we do when life gets tough? Now understand, enemies aren't necessarily always literal people banging down your door. Sometimes they are, but not always. Sometimes the enemy is just the many pressures and the burdens and, and the conflicts and the troubles and the... For that matter, even the very real sins that you keep struggling with and struggling with and struggling with. Or even the effects of sin that you experience because of others. This is a messed up world. It's a broken world. And we're all in it. And we're all experiencing it. Well, listen to this. God prepared a table for David. And what did he do? He renewed his strength even in the presence of his enemies. All of those enemies that you can count. In other words, here, here's the point. And I want you to remember this. God's ability isn't dictated by whether or not we are in enemy territory. No. Whether we're facing trouble or not. Whether we're in green pastures or even if we're in valleys of death. God prepares that table no matter what. And he invites you and me to go there and eat with him. Granted, that... You might at times feel like the present trouble is near you, but remember that God is nearer still. 
and he'll provide for all your needs. You see, God gives strength to his people and he will sustain you in a world of trouble. But we're not done yet. We're still only in verse 5. And listen to this in the third part of verse 5. Not only does God sustain us, but he gives us purpose when we come to the table. We see this when he says, you anoint my head with oil. So listen, if the table is prepared for us, speaking of new strength, the oil poured over us speaks of new purpose. There's a beautiful description of how Aaron uh, was anointed with oil as a sign that God had chosen him to serve as high priests over the nation. In Psalm 133, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. That's a lot of oil. The guy's getting drenched in oil here. It wasn't just some kind of little bit of oil that you dabbed on the top of his forehead. This, this anointing oil was poured out over his head. It ran over his beard. It dripped onto his collar, soaked in his robes. It, it stained it. It was a lot of oil. When David says, you anoint my head with oil, he, he must have had in mind the day that he had been anointed as king of Israel uh, when Samuel took the, whole, uh, the horn of oil and anointed him in front of his brothers. What does the oil speak about? Well, this oil speaks about giving, God giving purpose. He's giving us a calling. He's given assignments here. In the Old Testament, only a few people were anointed with oil, as Aaron was, as King David was. But in the New Testament, every single one of God's people is anointed with the Holy Spirit. You know what that means, church? This is what that means. It means that God has given you and me, all of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, some work to do. We got a job to do. We've been called. We have been anointed. Do you know that? Listen to Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, find out what God's called you to do and chase after it. And as you chase after it, God's going to sustain you. Finally, as part of preparing the table, God sustains us by giving us joy. Still in verse 5. Look at the last part of verse 5. My cup overflows. There's this kind of, I don't know what you call it, maybe a downbeat version of Christianity that kind of tells us that in this world you're going to be surrounded by enemies. Yeah, we will, but it seems like that's the focus, and somehow you've got to get through it, and you have to endure, stick it out, you know, put up with it, deal with it. And I mean, you have to, uh, you have to go through all of this stuff, and if you do, you'll be blessed in the end because then when your life in this world is over, you finally get to go to heaven and then you'll have joy. In other words, you can kind of sum it up with this, uh, uh, this line, maybe this vision statement of your life. Life stinks, but heaven's coming. <laughs> I, I don't want to live that way personally. But that's not what David is saying here. here. Here's a man who knew plenty of trouble in his life, and yet he says, my cup overflows. It doesn't make sense. If we read it just just face value. Here He's saying, listen, here in this fallen world, this broken world, this messed up world, with all that I face and all that I suffer, even now while my enemies are still present, even in the dark valley, David says, my cup overflows. You know, in John 15, 11, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy, that's his joy, it's an eternal joy, may be in you, that your joy may be full. 
It's a lot of joy. Earlier in John 10, John 10, verse 10, in fact, Jesus said that I've come that you might have what? Life to abundance. You see this abundance in the story of the prodigal son. When the son returns home, the father didn't meet him with reluctance. Ah, oh, so you come back, have you? Well, just make sure you don't do this again. No, the father ran out. What did he do? He ran out. He met the son. Tears were in his eyes. He hugged the son. He didn't care that the son was smelly and dirty and filthy and had shamed himself. He did not care. He didn't care that everybody else was watching him. No, he ran out there and he grabbed his son. He embraced him and he kissed him. And what did he do? He put the best robe on his back and a ring on his finger. When the prodigal son came home, the father didn't say, ah, you might be able to find a cold hot dog in the, in the fridge. No, he said, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's party. Let's eat table reminds us that God sustains by giving strength. The oil reminds us that God sustains by giving us purpose. The cup reminds us that God sustains by giving us abundant joy. Do you want that? Do you want that for yourself? How in the world do we get this strength, purpose, and joy? I mean, where do we find it? David said these things were his, so I think a a fair question is to ask, how do they become ours? Answer is actually found in Ephesians 1, 3, 1 verse 3, where we're told that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing found in Christ Jesus. And you know what? That was true for King David, who lived many, many years before Jesus, and the same can be true for us living many years after Jesus. But I think a good question for us to ask ourselves is this. What did the table, the anointing, and the cup mean for Jesus himself? That's our third point. What the table meant for Jesus. So I want to move now, flash forward into Matthew 26 for just a couple of seconds or moments here. Here he is on the night he's betrayed. Jesus met with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. In Matthew 26, 20, here's what we read. When evening came, he was reclining at the table, key word, table, with who? The 12. Here's what that means, church. Jesus is literally sitting at the table in the presence of one of his most infamous enemies. And who is that? Judas Iscariot. Here he is sitting with Judas Iscariot, knowing full well that Judas is about to betray him. Still breaking bread at the table, in fact... Jesus took the bread in his hands and he breaks it, just like when he had broken the bread when he fed the 5,000. But this time, he said in verse 26 of 26, take eat, this is my body. Then the next thing he does is he takes the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and this is what he said the next verse in. He said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Did you hear what he's actually saying here? Did you catch it? He said, this is my body. And this is my blood. I mean, I hope you caught this. I mean, listen, church, Jesus does more than just prepare the meal. This is what I want you to know. Jesus is the meal. In other words, Jesus gives you strength by giving you himself. He says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me will live because of me. He couldn't have been clearer. Church, Jesus gives you himself. He's our strength. 
He, and we feed on him by believing in him. As we trust him, we're going to draw strength from him. But again, there's more. There's so much in this passage of Psalm 23. Because David says next, yeah, again, you anoint my head with oil. What did this anointing mean for Jesus, though? Now, remember I mentioned a picture of Aaron and, uh, and uh, how he had been anointed for the task as high priest. Oil had been poured over his head, running down his beard, soaking into his robes. Well, in Mark 14, something very similar happened to Jesus. He was in the house having a meal with a, with a guy named Simon. Jesus had gone there with a group of friends, and this woman had come in and wanted to show Jesus, do something, whatever it might be, to show Jesus that, how much she loved him. And, and she happened to have this jar of, of expensive, very expensive ointment with her. What did Mark tell us? Mark tells us that she broke the flask and she poured it over the head of Jesus. That's not a coincidence. There's something going on here and there's a reason Mark tells us this story. Now, the disciples at that time, and especially Judas, thought that that was a complete waste. But Jesus said, no, hold it, hold it a minute, guys. What this woman has done... It's a beautiful thing. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. You can read that story in Mark chapter 14, by the way. Here's the point why I share this with you. Both David and Jesus were anointed. Except that David was anointed as king. Well, Jesus was anointed for burial. Jesus was anointed for death and for burial. You know why? so that you and I could be appointed to eternal life. He died so that you and I can live. Still more. So what did the cup mean for Jesus? Now Jesus spoke about the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. and In Mark 26, 39, he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let, the, let uh, this cup pass from me. What in the world is that cup? We read that a lot during the Easter uh, season. But really, what, what's he talking about when he's talking about this cup? In Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, I, I'm not going to read the full passage, but you can read that for yourself. Write that down. But there's this powerful description of the final judgment that awaits unrepentant sinners. It's there where we read that the wine of God's wrath is pulled full strength into the cup of his anger. You know what? That's the cup that was given to Jesus. And if the thought of it made him shrink back in horror while he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, what must the reality of drinking this cup have been when he endured it on the cross? And I just hope we get a little piece of an understanding of what that means. And if it's so terrible, why did the perfect... Holy Son of God have to drink the wine of God's wrath. You know why? He did so because we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verse 6. You see, when he took the, our sins, my sins, your sins on himself, the wrath of divine justice that should have been mine, should have been yours, should have been ours, fell on him instead. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you and I may drink the cup of God's blessing. Wow. He did this 
so that we could come and we could sit at his table and dine freely with him. I think there needs to be a response, don't you? So what would our response, what should our response be to all of this? Well, let me first of all speak to the person here who might not already be a follower of Jesus the Good Shepherd. When you hear the news that the shepherd leads his sheep into rest and righteousness. When you hear that he restores the sheep, bringing them back when they wander and picking them up when they weakened. When you hear that the good shepherd guards his sheep, that he walks with them through the valley of death, that they don't fear the shadow because they know that he's with them. And when you hear that the good shepherd sustains his sheep by giving them strength and purpose and joy, I don't know, isn't there something in you that says, I'd very much like these things to be true of me? Isn't there something in you maybe that, that would like to be able to say, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want because he leads me, he restores me, he guards me, and he sustains me. Listen, Jesus came into this world to gather a flock and make them his own. And why should you not be among them? Why not? So how do you become one of Christ's sheep? Well, let me give it to you in two words. These are Jesus' words, actually. He says, hear and follow. You know, in John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. We hear him, we follow him, we obey him. Recognize the shepherd's voice. If I can say anything to you, who, 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 to the one who is not a disciple of Christ yet, recognize the shepherd's voice speaking to you. In fact, that's what his sheep do. They they hear his voice. Now, I mean, you could say, I went to church today, I heard some guy talk about a shepherd and some sheep and about things like a table and an oil and a cup. But there's another way I think you could respond. You could hear the shepherd's voice. You could say, God is speaking to me. God, God is awakening me. The good shepherd is calling me and making me his own. Listen, if you have a desire to enjoy the leading, the restoring, the guarding, the sustaining that the good shepherd gives to all of his sheep. You have every reason in the world to believe that you are hearing the shepherd's voice and that he's calling you. And you can right now know that the good shepherd is inviting you to find strength at his table. He's inviting you to dine with him. He's inviting you to the king's table. He's holding the oil ready to anoint you for a new purpose. He's offering the cup of blessings so that your cup can be full. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And when you hear the voice of the good shepherd, I think there's only, really only one way to respond, one way. You know what that way is? It's to follow him. He'll lead you. He'll restore you. He will guard you. He will sustain you. He'll give you strength, purpose, and joy. Give yourself to him. Believe him. Trust him. Obey him. Follow him. And then you'll be able to say with David and with all of the flock of God, all of the rest of us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And if that's you this evening, please come and talk to me afterwards. Or for that matter, to the one who invited you here tonight in order that we can help you understand what it all means and the beauty behind it all. Now for the rest of us who are already here, who are his sheep, be encouraged in the picture David paints for us of God's shepherd-like care for his people. Both his presence, by the way, and his provision. He sustains us when we feel tired and drained and spent. 
Go to him when you've been struggling through a tough phase or, or situation in life. Go to him if you've lost your job or your business or your side hustle, whatever that might be. Go to the shepherd's table when you're in the middle of some kind of relationship issue or health issue or even addiction issues. Instead of looking to your peers who, whose lives seem to be picture perfect, with careers maybe better than yours, with perfect health, maybe perfect life partners, perfect Instagram pictures, comfortable lifestyles, and seemingly living a smooth sailing life with no obstacles or worries. Instead of looking to them, because none of that's true, look instead to the shepherd who has prepared a table for you. Listen, even when surrounded by hostility in the very presence of enemies, in the face of great opposition, he prepares and sets a table. You know what that is? That's a picture of peace in the middle of chaos. And that is what the church is meant to be. A table where peace rules, a, a, a picture of what is yet to come, even while set in this chaotic world that we all live in. And it allows us in turn to offer to those around us, those near to us and yet far from Jesus, Delicious appetizers of the feast yet to come. A feast that will finally and fully satisfy and will allow us to say along with the psalmist, my shepherd prepares a table for me even among my enemies. And it's such a good table that I have everything I need in this Iron Man race called life. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing for us you have shown your generous provision throughout the story, the narrative of the, of the Bible, of the Word of God, all the way from Genesis, providing a hope for the future, a hope to redeem mankind. Even as the children of Israel walked through the uh, wilderness, you provided manna and quail for them. You, you provided a way that where even their clothes did not wear out. You continued to show your, your hand in bringing them back to you when they sinned against you. You, you showed us redemption through your son Jesus Christ when he came to die on the cross for our sins and you continually show us your provision in our lives each and every day and one day we will see the ultimate picture and and realization of that uh, perfect redemption that perfect plan that perfect provision when we are with you in eternity sitting at the great feast of the lamb enjoying the table with our king and so father we look forward to that day and I pray that we live lives that display the hope, display the joy, display the purpose that you've given to us to uh, share this with the world so that the world sees Jesus and gives him glory. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.